Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Toby Altman. And I'm Emily Barton Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poets and poetry. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Mike Lala. Uh, hi, I'm Mike Lala. Mike Lala is a poet who works with text, recorded sound, and occasionally images. His first book, Exit Theater, was selected by Tyrone Williams for the 2016 Colorado Prize for Poetry and is forthcoming later this year. Current work can be found in Boston Review, Fence, The Brooklyn Rail, Denver Quarterly, Jubilat, The All, and Volt, as well as a number of chapbooks, most recently in the Gun Cabinet from the Atlas Review and 24 Exits from Present Tense Pamphlets. He lives in New York. You can find more of his work at his website, MikeLala.com. We caught up with Mike at a conference, so there's a bit of ambient noise on the recording. He'll perform a section from In the Gun Cabinet. I don't know if In the Gun Cabinet explicitly addresses uh, particular events or institutions, but it does talk about my history as a child connected to American military violence and my history, my personal history and my family's personal history with uh, sexual violence and my sort of interaction with military culture in some ways or images of military culture which uh, is, I don't know, to sort of very old-fashioned and um, concerned with decor and opulence and um, you know the the poem uh, tries to work its way through what these influences do to a person or what kind of effect they have on um, you know the development of a human being I guess so I grew up in like a dozen different places and so each of those places has like a significance or um, each of them means something to me but like not in the way that I think like people who grow up in like one town or one city there's no place like that for me that like holds me you know I don't it's like I don't really have like a hometown but the one common attribute of every place that I lived is that there was an Air Force base there, and we usually lived on the Air Force base. So in some ways, like, the military base is like a placeless place that could just be situated anywhere. The gun cabinet is supposed to be like a place itself in that you know, could be a military base, a place where, I mean, a gun cabinet, a place where weapons are stored. It's something that you keep in your home that is supposedly supposed to be secure. So it has like a sort of, I think when, when you hear the term gun cabinet, like you think of guns, obviously. You think of something inside your house. You think of maybe like a sort of paternal or like a, familial like legacy maybe uh, people handing down these old objects to each other and like for me it was like sort of a I mean obviously kind of like a surreal location where like something could be situated any any action could be staged um, because obviously like people don't go into gun cabinets but people put 
objects that they use to perform specific functions of violence in those gun cabinets, and those objects are attached to family and possibly national or state level histories. So the gun cabinet is in some ways just a theater for these themes to like play out in. Um, and, and because it's an impossible place to be, anything could happen there. Yeah, I think poetry has um, a long history of antagonizing power and interacting with institutions, social systems, this uh, culture at large, and empire and governance, uh, which is something that maybe American poetry like doesn't necessarily like value as much anymore. In the United States, there's been a conscious um, push away from politicized art, uh, especially in like the post-war, um, Cold War era. And there's been, um, especially in visual arts, there's been, you know, institutions like Ford Foundation and um, the Paris Review and critics like Clement Greenberg promoting abstraction and certain, you know, artists as like a response, for example, to uh, Soviet realism. But also, you know, the there's this thing called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was uh, funded by the CIA and deliberately worked to promote abstraction as, you know, an enterprise of freedom that in many ways, I think, like, affected the way that people think about, you know, what good art is. Poetry is such a small art compared to visual art, and the way that visual art interacts with money and power and criticism and culture is sort of on a larger scale, and I think it kind of trickles into poetry. And I think everyone has had that workshop where they bring in a political or explicitly political poem and um, or explicitly topical poem and or someone else does and the the teacher says this isn't it's not eternal or something you know it's not uh, it won't last but that's not really necessarily what poetry has to do um, and it's historically not what poetry has always done I didn't really start writing poetry seriously until I was probably like 19 or 20. Um, and before that I had written poems and I had written songs and I had tried to write plays, but I wasn't very good at writing plays. And in undergrad I took a class, well I took several classes, but I, my first class I took with Diane Murkowski kind of, she sort of I, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but kind of turned me into a poet or helped me learn how how poetry works for her, which gave me a model to practice. And then, you know, from there I could kind of develop my own model. But I didn't really have much like of a childhood interacting with poetry at all. I mean, to be honest with you, I had very little culture in my childhood. My parents were like super um, conservative and didn't really like exposing their kids to art that was, that didn't uphold their sort of worldview. I knew I wanted to write, I thought maybe I wanted to be a journalist, and I thought maybe I wanted to be a 
fiction writer, and then I thought, oh no, I want to be a playwright, because I was really into reading plays. And then, but poetry is what I sort of fell into. And so I think like it's clear that some of those other forms of writing or other art forms sort of inform what I'm doing now. Usually the way I write poems is by making notes, like usually just on my phone or um, sometimes on a computer. Um, and then when those, I have enough of those notes, I write the poem from the notes and then I format it afterwards. So each section was composed in like little draft note kind of things and then depending on the sort of feel of the brass and cadence and that sort of thing, that's what determined whether the lines were short or longer or if the sections were in, like a lot of it's in um, couplets, but some of it's just in like double spaced lines and some of the lines are really long and formatted all over the page and stuff. So depending on what's happening in the poems and what how the poems kind of breathe and feel rhythmically, then that would determine um, how I would lay them out on the page. I spend so much time on the text and the formatting of the text and there are so many options when it comes to formatting and and you can't really do that if you're just reading a poem aloud. So another way of making that happen live is to, or for me, is to record voices and then cue them during my reading of the poem to stand in for those parts that are formatted differently um, or put in quotes or italics or whatever. I mean, I've put casting calls out on the internet, I've asked friends, um, and I use a lot of the Apple computer voices. I um, have a bunch of these voices that I use and I manipulate their the spacing and the way that they say things in editing and then put little sound files together and then I have a program on my computer that basically turns my keyboard into a sampler so I can cue those voices live while I'm reading. But this is like a way of making, I mean, it may, I feel like it makes the work more, it, it interacts with the listener in a way that's like, up, demands attention a little bit more than someone just speaking the poems. So it demands their attention and it, and it sort of crosses over into like a space between like music and poetry in a way. The part that I read is the first section of In the Gun Cabinet. The eye in the poem enters a theater space and is confronted with a number of sort of like confusing or hyper real images of things happening. Uh, a needle weaving carpet and voices and marquees and uh, a flag and that sort of thing. Um, and then sort of like ghosts on the wall as I, I imagine them as images of old soldiers or something. I think this part is mainly sort of interacting with my experience in um, the Park Avenue Armory uh, on the Upper East Side, which is an old military drill hall. It has all these remnants of military history, but it's also this place where uh, now people put on concerts and plays and have exhibitions. And so much of In the Gun Cabinet is about learning to speak through poetry about these topics. And so this is the part where the speaker is there 
thinking or trying but failing to speak and just moving through this space, being influenced by these different objects and things happening. In the gun cabinet. In the gun cabinet, drapery, crushed velvet. Yes, red. Pulled over the fainting couch, the globe stands, the insides of the trumpet cases, the stain darkened where my brother cut his finger and drew it into the wood, the edge of the barrel my father dropped as it pitched and went off. Dusk falls in the gun cabinet, the city in yellow silk. I pull its sash, the first tower, markets, power grids. Mother, take my hand, lead me to the theater's bold lettering lit by hydrocarbons. Exit theater. I step in through the first door beneath an iron chandelier. My heels click an echo. Regiment, a pattern. Past the box office, will call, powder room, side halls, cocktail lounge, ice trays, and ceiling high mirrors through the next door. A theater. A needle weaving carpet. White noise from the speakers, white light under the curtain. I stand there before it. A face made of nuts. Unable to speak. A language I don't. Qu'est-ce que c'est? It sways. What is that? The folds shuffle. Cumquid velis nesquis quidikis. Like a parched Persian red tongue strung from the rafters, the curtain hangs mute and still. I step out to the hallways of the gun cabinet to rest, pick a scallop from the silver, chat the wall-hung former guests, ladle gin from a punch bowl as it calves off an ice flow, part my hair in a breastplate and plot my way back, making eyes at the taxidermy as I exit. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. To find out more about the podcast, check out our website and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please consider writing us a review, too. Special thanks to Grace and Elliot Taylor, who helped us with the engineering for this episode. And join us next time for an interview with Natalie Eilbert.